talks about two fundamental things, that God is doing all kinds of things in order to make all things new. That his ultimate goal is to bring restoration to a world that's been fractured and wrecked by selfishness, by sin. And uh, he's going to do that through the person of Jesus. He does all kinds of things in order to make that happen. And uh, over the last few weeks in chapters 5 through 8, we've been looking pretty in-depth about the Christian life. And as we do that, uh, Paul is painting a very realistic portrayal of the beauties and difficulties of this. And if you're someone here and you're not sure what you think about Christianity or you're sure you're not a Christian and you think Christians are a bit crazy, uh, this might seem a little irrelevant to you. But I would actually say what you have here is a wonderful opportunity to understand Christianity from the inside out or the outside in in your position. Either way, you're getting a really realistic understanding of what the life is like. And Paul last week was dead honest in chapter 7 and said, Christian life's like a war. It's a struggle. And it's not a struggle with all the bad stuff out there. It's a struggle with all the stuff in here. That regularly there are things that I do that I don't want to do. It's a struggle. And uh, this week, he's going to begin to answer that struggle by telling us that there's a new spirit that we have as well. So I'm going to be reading chapter 8, verses 1 to 17. Feel free to follow along. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For what God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. The Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. All right, let's pray together if you would. Good morning, Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that uh, you were kind enough and thoughtful enough in history to act and then have it recorded for the benefit of your people. And we pray, Lord, that uh, as we study a text that was written in a different language and a culture 2,000 years ago that, frankly, is second or third hand to us in many ways, that you would first grant us understanding about what it says, and then you would show us its significance, and that you would impress it into reality in the hearts of people uh, that trust you. We ask these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, here in chapter 8, we've, uh, we've come to what I would consider one of the most compact but beautiful chapters in all of Scripture. Uh, this is one of those questions that 
occasionally you'll get like, what's your favorite chapter in the Bible? Someone asked me this recently, and I'm like, I don't know. Um, but uh, this, is a, this is many people's because uh, it's just beautiful. And as we studied over the next few weeks, and actually probably stretch into the next semester, actually, uh, next few months, uh, you'll see what I'm talking about. Even if you don't agree with it, at the end of it, you'll say, if this was true, it's amazing. And Paul's describing all kinds of wonderful things in its depth and breadth and height and beauty. But it's coming out of chapter 7, this chapter with great struggle, where Paul basically ends up at the end of chapter 7 saying, I'm a wretch, wretched man that I am. Who's going to deliver me? And, and the, the tension between these two chapters sort of reminds me of a scene from The Princess Bride. And... Um, I'm not going to acquaint, uh, bring you up to speed with the movie if you're not familiar with it. And for the rest of you, you'll catch it from the dialogue. I think so. the dialogue will be sufficient for all of you. I'm not going to try and imitate the voices of Fezzik or Inigo or anybody else. It's just too hard. There's just two of them I do it, but there's three people. So anyway, um, Fezzik, they've basically, uh, Wesley's been dead slash mostly dead for quite a while. And... Uh, They've taken him to Magic Max, and Magic Max, finding out that uh, Wesley's quest is true love, has agreed to actually work a potion, a magic potion. Uh, he actually not, doesn't really care about true love. He just wants revenge against Humperdinck. And so they have this magic pill, and they go to Humperdinck's castle, and this scene happens on the embattlement over the castle as they're waiting to see what's going to happen. And they shove this big magic pill down uh, Wesley's throat. And Fezzik asks, how long do we have to wait? That's not how he talks. How long do we have to wait till we, before we know the miracle works? I'm not going to do that. Uh, your guess is as good as mine. Wesley wakes up. I beat you two apart. I'll beat you together. I guess not very long. Why won't my arms move? It's because you've been mostly dead all day. We had Miracle Max make a pill to bring you back. Who are you? Are we enemies? Why am I on this wall? Where's Buttercup? And Ego says, let me explain. No, there's too much. Let me sum up. <laughs> Buttercup is to marry Humperdinck in less than half an hour. So all we have to do is get in, break up the wedding, steal the princess, make our escape after I kill Count Rugen. That doesn't make much time for dilly-dallying. Fezzik says, hey, you just wiggled your finger. That's wonderful. Wesley replies, I've always been a quick healer. What are our liabilities? There's but one working castle gate. It's guarded by 60 men. What are our assets? Your brains, Fezzik's strength, my steel. That's it? Impossible. If I'd had a month to plan, maybe I could come up with something. But this, Fezzik says, hey, you just shook your head. Doesn't that make you happy? <laughs> My brains, your strength, his still against 60 men, and you think a little head jiggle is supposed to make me happy. Well, they go on to discover that they have a wheelbarrow and a Holocaust cloak. And slowly, Wesley's regaining some uh, animation in his body. They have all kinds of problems that they have to sort out before they break into the castle. And uh, the scene ends, actually, on this note with Fezzik saying, Anigo? And Anigo says, what, Fezzik? Fezzik simply says, I hope we win. And it's very interesting ending to the scene uh, because they have, no re- they have no reason to really hope this. And in some ways, this is a great portrayal of what many of us feel like about the Christian life. Now, if you're not a Christian, you're thinking, the Christian life's pretty crazy. It's like running into that herd of 60 men unarmed without a plan. Uh, but for many of us that are Christians, we sit, like Paul, and we, we take an account of the assets and the liabilities, and we look at our histories of failures, and the best we can come up with sometimes is, man, I hope we win. Like, I hope I can pull this off. 
Uh, the reality is, like Wesley, in a sense, we're still overcoming being mostly dead. Paul argues in Romans that we were spiritually dead as Christians, and that now, by Christ, we've been made alive. But he argued at length in chapter 6 and 7 that we still have this remaining principle in our lives that's at work, and it's still at work. And we are, in some ways, still carrying around the death in us. And this is what leads Paul, chapter 7, to say, I'm a wretched man. Who's going to deliver me? When the odds are impossible, when you look out there, you take the, the account of the liabilities and the assets, and you know, logically, there's no way that I can win this battle. What do you do? You either give up and simply say, I'll just give in to that sin. I'll just give in to that way of living. It's too hard. God will understand. It'll be okay. Or perhaps you steal yourself and you go out there and you get slaughtered anyway. Or you do what Paul does. You cry out for help. That's what Paul does. He cries out for a deliverer. Who will deliver me from this body of sin? And he answers his own question. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Paul's answer is that Jesus, and I said that like a southerner. It's actually not multiple syllables. It's Jesus. Jesus uh, is the answer. Uh, and, and not in just a simple Sunday school way, but in a, in a rich, full theological way. That there are multiple aspects of who Jesus is and what he's done that meet us in our struggle. And what Paul's going to talk about here is the gift of the Spirit. That if we're in Christ by faith, that we're given a new spirit. And this spirit, uh, I'm going to highlight two aspects of his work here in, in this text. And there's much more to talk about in the rest of the text in chapter 8. But it's, it's a new spirit of freedom. And it's a new spirit for the fight. A new spirit of freedom and a new spirit for the fight. And right away, before we go one inch further or one sentence further, I just need to talk about the word spirit because we're going to have all kinds of confusing words in our text here in chapter 8. And this is because we're the heirs of Greek culture and Western Enlightenment thought so that we fundamentally do not understand what Paul's talking about when he talks about spirit and flesh and things like that. Um, we, we think in these really Greek dichotomies of this is flesh, earth, materialistic stuff, and spirit is spiritual stuff up in the air. And that's not exactly what Paul's saying. When he says spirit, he's talking about a person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, not some abstract theoretical principle, not the force. But, and you may disagree that such a thing exists, of course, but, but Paul is saying God has revealed himself in history as Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons. And we're talking about that person, the Spirit. So uh, the spirit is a new spirit of freedom and a new spirit for the fight. And uh, the first thing we see about this new spirit of freedom in our text, and it comes out like a clarion call in verse 1, that it's marked by no condemnation. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. It's actually a really surprising verse given what you've just read in chapter 7. If you don't believe me, go home tonight or tomorrow morning. Read chapter 7. Think about it for a second and be like, oh, that hurts. And then read chapter 8, verse 1, and you wonder, where in the world did that come from? And it's a good question to ask because Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation. And you're like, therefore? That's the conclusion of an argument, Paul. I don't see this, like, if you've just added up all the numbers and drawn your line and said, da-da, there's a sum, therefore. I don't see how 7 relates to this. I don't see how you got this answer. And I think Paul's doing a couple things. He's saying, Given all that I've said so far in the book, there's no condemnation. But also, I'm going to give you the answer and show you the work. 
And what he goes on to do here in the next couple of verses, 1 through 4, is tells us there's no condemnation if we're in Christ Jesus. Again, this is a rich relationship, union with Christ. If you believe in Jesus, you are vitally connected with him in such a way that everything that's true of him becomes yours. That that is true of us, that there's no condemnation, because of what God has done. In verse 3, if you look at it, we see that there's no condemnation for God has done what the law Weakened by the flesh could not. Uh, What Paul's saying here is that it's our natural tendency to try to make ourselves right by obeying the law. Talked about this in chapter 7. It's what we all try to do. Do whatever we want and keep the law to make ourselves right. And that's the way to frustration and failure. Despondency. Despair. And, And it's not the law's fault. It's our fault. And Paul says God's done it. And the way he's done it is by sending his son. That the Father, at great sacrifice to himself, sent his Son. And that Jesus willingly comes in the flesh, verse 3, in the likeness of flesh. And thereby he condemns sin in the flesh. Here we're talking about what Jesus did on the cross. God the Father and God the Son got together and said, this is the way we're going to deal with sin. Sin needs to be condemned. It's a death-dealing destroyer. It needs to be taken care of. Mankind can't take care of it. There's only one way to take care of it. We need someone to go and fulfill the law perfectly and then suffer the penalty. And Jesus said, I'll do it. I'll come like a human, take on flesh, live a perfect life, and bear the penalty of sin. And so the summation of this, and it's really beautiful, is that there's no condemnation for those that are in Jesus because Jesus was condemned. I mean, Paul draws it that tight. Sin was condemned in him so that there's no condemnation for you. And what we see is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit all at work in these verses, applying this to you. Applying this to you. What does the Spirit do here? Verse 4 goes on and says, In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Uh, That is, it's God's desire to make you lovely, to make you Christ-like, that you would actually fulfill the law and be holy and righteous. But you can only do that on the back of what Jesus has done. And it takes a vital union with Christ by the Spirit to make that happen. And the Spirit's come to apply what Jesus has done to you. So the first mark of this new spirit of freedom is no condemnation. None. This means if you're a Christian, you should not be living in fear. You should be free of fear. There should be real joy in your life. And uh, secondly... Uh, that we should have a child's confidence. Now, this is the end of the text in verses 15 to 17. But we read in verse 15, You didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And what, what Paul is saying here is it should be your natural inclination, if you're in Jesus, if you know what God's done for you, not condemning you, and adopting you into his family, that when you think of God, you call him Father. That it's a natural filial relationship of love. That should be natural for you. Your natural relationship to God, if you're a Christian, should be one of, my father loves me. Now, uh, that's, the way, that's not the way most people think about God at all. And that's not the way many Christians think about God. Uh, but Paul goes on and argues that we should have a confidence, the confidence of a child, that if we're in Jesus, that we have vital family connections. We've been adopted into God's family. That God the Father treats us like his own son. 
that we have the same future that Jesus has. That's what verses 16 and 17 go on to say. You're going to receive the same inheritance as Jesus. You're going to be glorified just like him. That if you've been adopted into this family, God the Father is going to treat you like his own son. You need to let that sink in. We don't expect that to happen in the real world, much less in the spiritual world. We don't expect God to act that way. This text is telling us that we should have a child's confidence that God the Father deeply loves us and cares for us. No condemnation. Begins the text. Glorified with Jesus ends the text. That is freedom. That's freedom. The spirit of freedom that should characterize you if you're in Jesus. And what the Holy Spirit does, the new spirit that Paul's talking about, is it takes what's true of you. These are legal acts. God has made you right, no condemnation, and God has adopted you. You're mine. Those are legal acts, and it makes it experientially true in your life. You're, and some of you are sitting, you're looking at me right now, you're like, oh, huh. got it. It's just something that happened on some heavenly piece of paper, and it's filed away in some heavenly file cabinet. It's, the Holy Spirit's job is to take that thing that you know to be true somewhere, written somewhere, and drive it deep into your heart so it becomes true in your life, experientially, emotionally. Uh, a good example of this was uh, observed by an old theologian, Thomas Watson. He was simply watching, uh, and this, this needs to happen to me because I'm such a good father. He was simply walking behind a father and a son. And uh, as they're walking along, the father snatches up the son and gives him a giant hug and says, I love you. And the son says in return, I love you too. Now, that actually happens pretty often in my family. I know it doesn't happen in everyone's family. I'm fortunate in that regard. But Watson goes on and asks this question. Uh, was the son at the moment he was in his daddy's arms legally any more his son than when he wasn't? No. Whether he was there or here, legally a son in the same way. But was the son experientially more his son? Experientially, was he more loved? Did he experience the father's love in a new and profound way when his father snatched him up and hugged him? And the answer is yes, of course. And it's the job of the spirit, the spirit that God gives you, to snatch you up and hug you and say, and to whisper into your ear, there's no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. You're the Father's beloved child. It's to drive into your heart the truth of these realities. Now, uh, I just have to ask a couple questions. Is, is this what's true of you? And the reality is none of us are on call in this regard and got together 24-7. We're fallible human beings. I understand that. But is it your natural, I didn't say easy, but natural inclination when you think of God to think of him as a loving father that cares for you? That there's no condemnation regardless of what you've done in the last 24 hours apart from your performance because of what Jesus has done for you? Or do you think of him as an angry, distant tyrant? I've talked about the spirit being the spirit that's marked by freedom and confidence. Do you have a hard time believing that? Do you have a hard time believing God loves you? Uh, one uh, pastor has written, Christians who are unsure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their present achievements, are subconsciously radically insecure persons. The insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness, a defensive criticism of others. They cling desperately to legal, 
pharisaical righteousness, but envy, jealousy, and other branches of the tree of sin grow out of their fundamental insecurity. That's a fancy way of saying, um, if you don't really get how much God loves you and you're radically insecure about it, it will bear fruit in your life and it will not be pretty. You will do whatever you want to. You'll sin. And you'll try to justify yourself. And justification of yourself looks like prideful self-assertion, judging others, I'm right, you're wrong, back off. Instead of the freedom that this text talks about. How do you live with this kind of freedom? How does this kind of freedom become yours? And whether you're a Christian or not, the answer is the same. You have to rest in Jesus. This is all about being in union with Christ. And it's the job of the Holy Spirit to to shine a floodlight over your shoulder onto the person of Jesus and what he's done to show in stark relief all the beauty of what he's done. And you're supposed to look at it and believe it. Well, the same spirit of freedom that you have if you're in Christ also prepares you and energizes you to fight. I'm going to move through this much quicker, um, even though it's a pretty belligerent text. But uh, it's really easy to think, okay, God's done that, now I must do this. And that's the way many of us think about the Christian life. God's made me right, now it's my job. And that's the fast way to frustration. Instead, what this text is really doing is telling us also what the Holy Spirit, this new spirit that God's given us if we're in Jesus, does in us. Paul is orienting us to the equipment that God's given us. And some of us are like, I can do it, I'm ready. And we run out into battle, and we've got no idea. We've never been trained a day with the equipment we've got. And so it's no surprise that our lives are a complete wreck. Um, so what we're doing here is trying to understand how we've been equipped by this new spirit that's been given to us. And the first thing we see is that we've been given a new ability. Paul talks about this in verses, 19, verses 9 through 11. And he addresses the Romans very clearly and directly. You, you guys... You're not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Translation, no matter how much you're struggling or what you feel like, if you've trusted in Jesus, you are in him. And if you're in him, you do have the Spirit. And if you have the Spirit, you have the Spirit of life, verse 11, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. That same powerful spirit that worked in Jesus to bring life out of death is at work in you, giving you a new ability. Paul's argued, and he's been arguing for three, three chapters, that the Christian life is a struggle. It's a struggle because we have this old, selfish, preoccupied, stubborn self that Paul calls the flesh. And even though it's been defeated, it still lives in the house. It is Wesley's remaining mostly deadness that we carry around with us. We just haven't recovered, and we never will in this life. Our whole life long, like Wesley, although he recovers really quickly, um, there will be things we want to do that we cannot do or won't do because we just carry this sinful selfishness around with us till our graves. But Paul is saying something else has moved in as well, a new life, a new power, and it's at work in you. And, and you see it in your new ambitions, Verses 5 through 7, Paul's talking about the mindset, the attitude, or if you will, the default setting of your mind that we have. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Pretty clear. You are what you think, or what you think shows what you are. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit's life and peace. 
And what Paul's saying here is your spiritual nature determines your mindset, and your mindset reflects your spiritual nature. So, you know, all of us have at least one or two screensavers. You're in a conversation, and whether the person you're talking to is just dead boring or the person who's speaking about Romans 8 is completely boring, boom, screen's up, things bouncing off, whatever. The screen shot or screenplay of your mind, screensaver, it's the default mode, the idle mode of your head. And what is that for you? Uh, it might be, the, and this is often me, depends on the time of the year, a giant list of all things I have to do. And a slight tint of the anxiety that encompasses that. Uh, it might be a fantasy of escape from that giant list. Like, I wish I could be anywhere from here. Um, it could be something innocent, or it could be some uh, not-so-innocent fantasy. It could be any number of things, but you have a number of screenshots, and that reflects something deeply personal about your, about your spiritual soul. And, and Paul is saying, generally speaking, um, he's being really black and white, but I think he's also understanding, given the realities of complexities of the human heart. If all you think about yourself, well, that's all you are. You're just a selfish human being. You're just all flesh. And if your screensaver doesn't occasionally flash something like, God loves you, I love God, I should love God, I love others, I should love others. Some of these aspects, the heart of the Christian life, then there's something wrong. Not just with the screensaver, but with like the central processing unit. There's something wrong in your heart. You're lacking the spirit. And Paul says, if you lack the spirit, you ain't got Jesus. He traces it all the way back. But it's the job of the spirit to give you these new ambitions, these new desires, and if some of you are here, and I just want to say that, if some of you are here and you're desperately trying really, really hard to do what's right, to love God and love others, and it's terribly frustrating for you, uh, it, there's possibly two reasons. One, it is hard. It's, Paul called it a battle. But two, you could be trying to do it out of your own selfish, humanly power, what Paul calls the flesh. And I did that for years. And this is the most soul-crushing, depressing thing ever. And I just want to raise the possibility this is not a judgment on you, that you might just be missing Jesus and what he's done for you. I'd like you to just raise that question and be willing to talk to me about it. Well, um, Paul goes on and says, not only do you have new desires and ambitions, but there's a new obligation. And verse 12, he says that we are now debtors, brothers, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. And uh, we don't like this idea of debt or obligation immediately brings up negative connotations. And I think it's because we don't like to owe people anything. Um, but Paul's using this word in a slightly different way, not just of us owing something, but of a great gift given to us that we're now stewards of. And a great example of this or illustration of this is uh, from the movie Goodwill Hunting. Uh, Goodwill Hunting happens in Boston, which means I have to heavily edit everything that was said. Um, but uh, the general story is that Will is... Uh, a brilliant but broken young man. He's a mathematical genius. Uh, he has a very complex mind. He pretty much remembers everything he's ever read. Uh, and he's very personally and interpersonally broken. He's got some good old friends that love him very well. One of them's Chucky. And they work together at a, uh, at a landfill. And this conversation happens. Chucky's just found out that uh, Will's girlfriend's moved away. His girlfriend went to med school. And uh, Will's been going to counseling and seeing some people about uh, 
impossibly difficult math problems because he's a genius. And, and Chucky's being optimistic for him and saying, well, at least you're going to get out of here. And Will's like, yeah, so they can put me in a lab as a rat and I can do long division. And, and then Will asks the question, what do I want to way out of here for? I mean, I'm going to live here with you guys the rest of my life. We'll be neighbors. Our kids will play ball down at the field. And then Chucky says, look, you're my best friend, so don't take this the wrong way. But in 20 years, if you're still living here, coming over to my house to watch Patriots games, still working construction, I'll kill you. That's not a threat. That's a fact. I'll kill you. What are you talking about? And Chucky says, look, you've got something. None of us, and we'll cut some off. Oh, come on, man. Why, why is it always this thing, this I owe it to myself to do this? What if I don't want to do it? And Chucky says, all right. No, no, actually, no. You don't owe it to yourself. You owe it to me. Because tomorrow I'm going to wake up and I'll be 50 years old. And I'll still be doing this crappy job. And that's all right. That's fine. I mean, you're sitting on a winning lottery ticket, though. And you're too scared to cash it in. And I'd rather do anything than this. And I'd do anything to have what you've got. So would any of these guys. It would be an insult to all of us if you're still here in 20 years. And the way we should think about the obligation here in verse 12 isn't a, I owe this to myself to live a better life. It's God has given me, in the person of Jesus, a remarkable gift. He's given me new life. He's taken away all my guilt. There's no condemnation in Jesus. I have a glorious future of glorification. I've been adopted into the best family in the world. He's put his own spirit in my life so that Jesus can dwell with me. It's a great gift. And I don't owe myself anything. I owe it to him to live differently. And and then Paul at this point could turn a thousand different ways and say, do something. Uh, But what he does instead is says, okay, get to work, get get to war. And uh, and if you're not familiar with our group, then you might immediately, this is where he tells them to go out and yell at people and be angry about how bad the world is or those kinds of people. And that's not what Paul does at all. Instead he says, uh, there's a war to be fought. Let's start right in your own heart with new deeds in verse 13 and 14. If you live according to the flesh, you'll die. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons. What Paul is saying is uh, the, the battle you most need to be concerned about is putting to death in your own life that remaining sinful, selfish, preoccupied, stubborn impulse that you're going to live life the way you want to forget God and forget others. You're going to live life on your own terms. You're going to, be, you're going to do what you want. And you're going to try and make it right. That's what you're going to do. And Paul's saying, that has to die. It's going to die. Uh, the fancy theological term for this, and frankly, if you didn't know this, there's a fancy theological term for everything, is mortification, uh, which means the ification of putting things to death. Actually, I made that up. But um, it, really quickly, this is not repression. Repression is trying to suppress something that's potentially good for you. That's not it. Uh, This sinful impulse is not good for you. This wreaks death and destruction in relationships. Your sin does nothing good for anyone. It gives you momentary pleasure. You enjoy it for a while. But long term, it's never done anyone a bit of good. It, It brings ruin. It's putting to death a mortal enemy that lives in you. It's not repression. And it's not asceticism. Asceticism is removing yourself away from everything, hoping that the bad and evil world out there won't affect you in some way. That's not this at all. This is looking at yourself honestly and saying, I've got a real problem in here. I'm a selfish human being. 
and I've got, to, I've got to get rid of that. And you can't do that by yourself. Basically, Jesus has said, if I don't move in in the Spirit, you can't do this. But he's done that. He's moved in by the Spirit. So what we have then are a new spirit for the fight, given to you that you can put things to death, and a new freedom in the Spirit. Well, uh, coming back to Will real quick, and we'll close with this. Uh, Will was gifted, smart. Uh, it's possible that he wanted the right things, that he had the right desires and lacked the ability. It, frankly, it's hard to know even if he had the right desires. Uh, he was incapable because of his brokenness of really loving people well and moving toward them. He was closed. He was uh, radically insecure and proud. He was afraid and defensive. Uh, though he was wonderfully gifted, he was far from free, far from loving. And uh, during that conversation with his friend Chucky in the, in the landfill, uh, Chucky said and shared this with him. He was like, I long for the day, Will, when I pull up to your house and knock on your door and you don't answer it. Because that means you're free. You've left. I don't need an explanation, but it means you've gone on to the things that you were made for. You've been set free. And uh, it happens in a session with this counselor, Sean. He's broken up with his girlfriend, Skylar, and this counselor, Sean, uh, is holding up Will's file. If you haven't seen the movie, it's worth saying just for this scene. If you have seen the movie, try to hold your tears in. So, uh, in the file is basically all of Will's history. And Will's history has been one of, of uh, terrible physical abuse. There's picture after picture of cigarette burns. Um, you know, his father beat him with a wrench. And so it goes. And his counselor holds up and says, Will, uh, none of this is your fault. And Will just sort of shrugs it off. Yeah, I know. Uh, no, son, it's not your fault. Yeah, I, I know. Counselor looks him in the eye, pursues him. It's not your fault. Stop messing with me, Sean. No, it's not your fault. He pushes him and threatens him. It's not your fault. Until the tears fall and the walls come down. And Will collapses onto Sean, weeping. And you actually hear him through the cries saying, my God, I'm sorry. It's really weird for him to say that. But he actually says that um, because he didn't do it. Although his whole life has been wrapped up in how he's responded to this. The next day, or a couple days later, Chucky goes to pick up his friend Will, and Will's not there anymore. He's been set free. And this is the lesson for us, the message that in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. It sets you free to live the way you're supposed to. Jesus never whispers to us about our sin, anyway. It's not your fault. He doesn't, because our sin is our fault. There may be other things that have happened to us that aren't our fault. But Jesus does whisper to us, if we're in him, there's no condemnation. None. Zero. Zilch. I love you. You're mine. And that's good news. That's good news that will set you free. Free from fear. Set you free and give you the power to live a different kind of life. To be honest about yourself and what's in your life. And to have the desire put some of those things to death so that you can love others and love God like you're called to. All right, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text, and uh, it's certainly not